Well, I do want to uh, encourage you and invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We are not doing a traditional Advent series this year. Often in December, we'll sort of take four weeks in the build-up to Christmas and focus on the themes of Advent or something that is Christmassy at least. Uh, This year, we're not doing that, but we are just continuing our study in the Gospel of John. Now, Advent is all about waiting or anticipation for the Messiah who was to come. And the Gospel of John really takes us to the heart of what the coming of Jesus was all about. And it does that from the first verse to the last. Now, today we're looking at a fantastic story in John chapter 4 from the ministry of Jesus that gives us an up-close look of how grace works. And I entitled this message, Grace and Truth. I took that title from what is said about Jesus in the first chapter of the, the Gospel of John. It's a verse that we've spent some time unpacking already. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about that, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We understand something about grace, at least theoretically we do. We understand ideas like forgiveness and second chances. We understand what it is to receive something we did not deserve. That's grace. We also understand something about truth. We know what it is to discover truth. Maybe it's a truth about ourselves or about a situation We talk about the cold, hard truth. To paraphrase Jack Nicholson, we say we want the truth, but we can't handle the truth, right? I mean, there's this sense that truth is hard to take at times. And so we often think of grace and truth as opposites, or at least they're somehow in tension with one another or conflict with one another. another. And what Jesus helps us understand is the perfect combination of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I would say there might not be a better picture of grace and truth on display than the one we find in John chapter 4. Now I'm going to read verses 1 to 30 of that chapter for you. This is God's word and this is what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem, or that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Well, it's a long passage, so we're going to jump right into it. I, I kept the outline super simple for you this morning, just two main points. The first one is that Jesus is full of grace, and the second one is, you guessed it, Jesus is full of truth. But let's start with the first one, this idea that Jesus is full of grace. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Came through Jesus Christ. Now, there are a couple ways that we can see that Jesus was full of grace in this passage. And I would say we see it firstly in the fact that he seeks lost people. Now, this is something we read about all through the Gospels. Jesus tells us this was his mission in coming to earth. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. On another occasion, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we celebrate Advent not just because, or not just so we understand the truth that Jesus came into the world, but to understand why Jesus came into the world. And one of the most succinct answers to that question was given by the Apostle Paul when he said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, Jesus seeks lost people. That's why he came. And we see that here in this passage. Notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to his town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 3 says he had to pass through Samaria. Now that's an interesting phrase. 
Its literal rending would, rendering would be something like, he must needs pass through Samaria. And the term that's used here is the one that we would use saying, a triangle must have three sides. It speaks to something that is a necessity. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now that word's actually used several times in the Gospel of John. In John 9, Jesus talks about the necessity of focusing on his mission because the time is short. And he says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Or in John chapter 20, Jesus' disciples are huddled together. Jesus has been crucified, but they don't yet know that he's been raised from the dead. And John says, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the word speaks to something that is a necessity. And the question then is, why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Now, it could be that this was simply a a geographical necessity. I think I, I put a map up here. You can see that Galilee is up in the north. Judea is down in the south. And Samaria is right in between. And so if you were to go from Judea to Galilee, you must, you have to out of geographical necessity, pass through Samaria. So there was a road connecting them that went right through Samaria. The problem with that is that there were other routes that Jesus could have taken. And as a matter of fact, many strict Jews would not take the road that went through Samaria. They would instead travel around it. That road was also thought to be dangerous. I mean, it's the road to Samaria that is the setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? This is where an unsuspecting traveler gets ambushed. Now, it could also be when it says he had to pass through Samaria, it's a temporal necessity. It's a, there's a time problem. We know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. This being the shortest route, it would save Jesus some time to take that road. Maybe he needed to be in Galilee quickly. It's sort of be like when you take a road trip to California. Now, if you have the time, you take the Pacific Coast Highway, right? Because it's beautiful. I mean, that's where you see the, the, the cliffs and the ocean that's in all those car commercials. It's a great drive, lots of scenery. But if you're in a hurry, you just stay on the I-5. There's no scenery at all to see except gas stations and the occasional In-N-Out Burger, right? I mean, that's, that's all there is. But if you're in a hurry, that's what you do. You take the I-5. You must. So maybe Jesus has to pass through Samaria because he has pressing business in Galilee and he's in a hurry. But as you read the story, you discover that Jesus doesn't seem to be in any kind of hurry. In fact, he's going to stop in one of the Samaritan cities or towns for a couple extra days. Now, maybe he had to go this way out of necessity for his own safety. It wasn't long ago he cleansed the temple. He's upset the religious leaders by many things that he said and done. And maybe this is just a safer way to go. We know he does avoid the crowds and the leaders on the hostile ones on occasions. Maybe there's some of that going on, but I think there's more to it than that. In John chapter 10, there's another use of this word must. John 10 verse 16 reads like this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And I think what is going on when it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. 
is that he is under the compulsion of the divine will to seek out the lost Samaritan sheep. Jesus had to go through Samaria because this was a demonstration that he had not merely come to enhance the Jewish religion, but he had come to show that he is in fact the savior of the whole world. That's actually the climax of this passage. If you jump ahead to verse 42, it says, They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, that's why Jesus has to go through Samaria, because he's seeking the lost sheep in Samaria. So he had to pass through this region that was looked down upon by the Jews of his day. But while most Jews who had to pass through Samaria, maybe because of time, would do just that, they would pass through, look straight ahead, don't make eye contact, don't roll down the windows. Jesus instead stops and he engages this woman in a conversation. And verses 6 and 7 tell us, most of what we need to know about this particular woman that he talks with. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Then verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Well, those verses actually tell us three things about this woman, two of which are obvious, and the third one that's not so obvious, but they tell us, firstly, that she was a Samaritan, and that was significant. She herself is surprised that Jesus would engage her in a conversation, given that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. That's her first question to Jesus. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And then John adds the parenthetical note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, the Samaritans were looked down on by the Jews. And the historical background to that is that when the northern kingdom of Israel Israel, fell to the Assyrians in the 8th century, the Assyrians did not carry the Israelites away into exile. They just instead imported their own people into Israel And everyone mixed together. And the two groups actually blended together. This blending involved intermarriage between the Jews and the Assyrians. And also a blending of some of their, many of their religious beliefs and practices as well. And the offspring of those relationships were referred to as the Samaritans. It was a derogatory term. They were considered half-breeds. And for that reason, many Jews would not so much as look at Samaritans, much less engage them in a conversation. Second thing we're told about this woman was that she was, surprise, surprise, a woman. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, we cannot find this kind of insight anywhere else. So glad that these kind of things are pointed out to us. But this too was significant. Later in the chapter, in verse 27, we read this. Just just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
See, the disciples didn't say anything to Jesus about it, but they were all surprised to come back and see Jesus in conversation with a woman. Why? Well, some leading rabbis taught that to talk too much to a woman, even one's own wife, was a waste of time. Women weren't thought to be capable of handling theological discussions. But Jesus wasn't bound by such social conventions or practices. In his mind, she's one of the lost people he has come to seek. Third thing we learn about this woman from Samaria is that she was an outcast. Now, I know I alluded to this a couple weeks back. There's a sense in which all Samaritans were, at, were outcasts to a certain degree. But she appears to have been an outcast among the outcasts. And I take that from two facts in the story. The first is that she comes to the well alone. And the second is the unusual time of day that she comes to the well. In verse 6, it says that it was about the sixth hour when this took place. Now, the sixth, the Jewish way of reckoning time, they started at 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour is 12 o'clock noon. And the reason that's important is because that was not the normal time of the day for women to come and draw water from the well. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, I want you just to listen to a few verses from the Old Testament that describe the normal custom in terms of when women came to water wells. Genesis 24, we read about Abraham commissioning one of his servants to go and search for a wife for his son Isaac. Here's part of what it says about that servant's journey. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Exodus 2 describes a similar scene like this. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to their father's flock. Or 1 Samuel 9 where it describes King Saul searching for the prophet Samuel. And the setting of that story reads like this. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And what those verses tell us is that women typically came to the well in groups and they typically came in the cool hours of the day, either in the early morning or in the early evening, not at 12 o'clock noon when the sun is at its highest or brightest or hottest. But she comes in the heat of the day and she comes all alone. Now, it's actually not hard to imagine why this woman might have been an outcast among the outcasts. I, I'm not sure what to say. Um, but, but here's the deal. Sychar wasn't that big of a town, right? It's a, a fairly small town. And the fact that she had been together or had five husbands probably didn't make her very popular amongst the other women of Sychar. And the point of all of this is that she had lots of strikes against her. Lots of reasons why a respected religious leader or even just an average Jewish man might want to avoid her. But Jesus engages her in a spiritual conversation because Jesus is full of grace and he seeks lost people. Now, as an aside, I should just remind you that the designation lost people doesn't just refer to people like this Samaritan woman. Just a couple weeks back, we looked at the story of Nicodemus, a respected religious leader who came to Jesus at night. And in many ways, he was the polar opposite of the Samaritan woman. 
He's wealthy. He's respected. He's theologically orthodox. But he needed saving every bit as much as she did. So you can be irreligious and be lost, and you can be religious and be lost. And Jesus seeks lost people. That's why Jesus said, you all need to be born again. Everyone. Jesus is full of grace. There's another indication of that here, and that is that he freely offers what we cannot find anywhere else. So the first part of this conversation between Jesus and this woman from Samaria revolves around water. But the key word in this first section is actually the word give. It appears eight times in verses 7 to 15. It starts out with Jesus saying, give me a drink. But everything else in this passage is about the living water that Jesus wants to give her. Now, maybe that image of living water is a little bit lost on us because we are all used to having access to fresh water whenever we want it. But living in a desert climate in the first century, everyone knew what it was like to be thirsty and to only have access to stagnant water. This woman knew all about thirst. She didn't have a fridge full of Desani or a tap in the kitchen. She could just sort of go and turn on whenever she wanted a drink. If she wanted to satisfy her thirst, she had to travel with her water jar to this well. So when Jesus starts talking about a different water source, she is immediately interested. But what Jesus is really helping her to see is that she's thirsty with a kind of thirst that is deeper than her thirst for drinking water. He wants her to know he's prepared to give her something that can satisfy her in a way that nothing has ever satisfied her in her life. And he puts it this way in verse 14. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Or sorry, what I wanted to to read is in verse 10, where Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's interested, right? The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So she wants what it is that he's offering. Jesus says, but whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty anymore or have to come here to draw water. So, so far, so good. I mean, she's interested, but she still doesn't really understand what it is that he's talking about. And then Jesus takes things in an entirely different direction when he he says to her, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, why does Jesus do this? Is he trying to shame her? Is he trying to recant his offer? Well, you know what? I would give you this water, but you know what? You've been with five different men. You're not worthy of it. Is that what Jesus was doing? Well, it's not. What he was doing is helping her see the true depth of her own thirst. Why has this woman had five husbands? 
why is she with another man now who's not her husband? Well, the answer seems to be that she could not find satisfaction she was looking for in any of those relationships. And Jesus wants her to know she'll never find it there. One writer paraphrases what Jesus is saying to her in this way. If you want to understand the nature of this living water I offer, you need to first understand how you've been seeking it in your own life. You've been trying to get it through men and it's not working, is it? Your need for men is eating you alive. It will never stop. Now look, not everyone searches for satisfaction in the same way she did or in the same place she did. But we all search for it. We're all searching for that which will satisfy us. We all have a deep thirst that longs to be satisfied. And searching for that satisfaction in relationships is just one wrong place that we can search for it. Here's what Boris Becker, the former number one tennis player, had to say. He said, I won Wimbledon twice. Once, as the youngest player, I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they're so unhappy, but I had no inner peace. See, the reason he could not find ultimate satisfaction in his accomplishments or his money or his fame is because those things can't satisfy us in any ultimate sense. The reason this woman couldn't find satisfaction in her relationships is because they are not meant to satisfy us like that. Now, our stories might be different, but there's a certain level on which we can all identify with trying to fill our lives with that that doesn't ultimately satisfy us. God said it this way through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think that picture of broken cisterns is a good way for us to understand our search for satisfaction. We try to make our lives complete with some relationship or some experience or some accomplishment and we find that none of them can satisfy us in the way we want. They all leak. They might give us a temporary sense of satisfaction. They might satisfy our thirst for a moment. But they can never satisfy the longing of our souls. And so if none of these things can satisfy us, then what can? Well, C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That's actually what Jesus was telling the woman at the well. Look, I've got a source of water that will satisfy your thirst like nothing you've ever had before. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later in the Gospel of John, we read about Jesus saying essentially the same thing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus offers freely 
what we cannot find anywhere else. And so maybe I just need to ask, have you taken him up on that offer? Have you acknowledged that your own pursuits have often been dead ends and have left you just as thirsty or just as hungry? Have you hewn out for yourself a broken cistern that cannot satisfy you? It leaks. Have you said to Jesus, give me this water? And he will give it to you because he is full of grace. Secondly, though, we also discover that Jesus is full of truth. If the word that dominated the first part of Jesus' conversation with this woman was the word gift or give, the word that dominates the second part of his conversation with her is the word truth. Jesus is full of truth. And let me expand on that by making two observations. The first one is that Jesus knows all about us. I mean, he certainly knew about this woman. This woman. He tells her to go call her husband. Her response is a brief, I have no husband. Now, she's, she had been quite talkative up to that point, right? Now she wants the conversation to end. And we don't know exactly how Jesus knew about her five husbands, but Jesus knew. He knew all about this woman. But his knowledge of her did not cause him to write her off or keep his distance. He's not scared or shocked by anything about her. He's not afraid to be seen talking with her or associating with her. And Jesus knows all about us. He's not shocked or surprised by anything that is true about us. Even those things no one else knows. You know, there's an interesting story in the ministry of Jesus that demonstrates the way Jesus knows each one of us. We read about it in Luke chapter 7. And there it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So Simon is sitting there. He's invited Jesus to dinner. This woman comes in, starts you know, wiping his feet, kissing them, all of that stuff. And he thinks, look, if he were really a prophet, he would know who she is. He can't even perceive something that is obvious. The way she's dressed, the way she carries herself. She's a prostitute. But Jesus turns the tables and he tells a parable that makes it clear that he not only knows this woman, he knows Simon's heart as well. And he tells this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of those or which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she is anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? See, the problem in Luke chapter 7 was not that Jesus didn't know who the woman was. The problem was that Simon did not understand who Jesus was. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus knows all about us and still loves us. There's no use trying to hide anything from him. The truth is we can't have a relationship with him until we admit who we really are. And this is something lost in our day. We talk about grace. We don't talk so much about truth. And all of that gets brought into the light. And Jesus knows it already anyway. Jesus is full of truth. Second thing we learn about that is that he will not accept anything less than wholehearted worship. So after Jesus pinpoints something in her life, she wants to change the subject, right? He's told her, look, I I know you've had five husbands. The guy you're with now is not your husband. And then verse 19. Sir, I perceive, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she wants to change the subject. Right? She wants to talk about what our fathers did. I mean, this well is from Jacob. Jesus wants to talk about the, the father. Now, she might have a legitimate question about which location is the right location for worship, but it's just as likely this was a bit of a smokescreen, right? Some people say this, others say this. I'm not really sure what to believe. And this is really not all that different from what we encounter all the time when we try try to talk to people about Jesus. The default response of most people when you try to engage them in a spiritual conversation is to say something like, oh yeah, but I'm spiritual but not religious, And if you try to probe that, what you will find is that what most people mean by that is that they try to be good people. They try to make the world a better place. They have a vague belief in some sort of higher power, but they're not interested in organized religion. You know, there's so many different religions out there. They all basically say the same thing. But notice Jesus doesn't let the woman off the hook that easily. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what? I guess you're right. Some people say one thing. Some people say another thing. Thank you for at least telling me you you think highly of me. You think I'm a prophet. Instead, he tells her the truth. Right? Listen to what he says in verses 21 to 24. He says, you worship what you do not know. Or he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now notice he does set her straight on the record of the Old Testament's prescribed place of worship. But he does something actually far more important than that. He tells her that what really matters, what God is really seeking, is those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. One commentator put it this way, thus true worship is not a matter of geographical location, worship in a church building, 
physical posture, kneeling or standing, or following a particular liturgy or external rituals. It is a matter of the heart and of the spirit. And what God wants from us is true worship. Right? We come in truth. We don't hide anything. He wants us to know him as he is, not as we might imagine him to be. And he wants us to worship him accordingly. That's actually the transformation that begins to take place in this woman's life. And you can see, if you trace this out in John chapter 4, that her understanding of the truth starts to grow. So when Jesus first starts to talk about living water, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the implied answer is, you can't possibly be. But then in verse 19, she says, well, I perceive that you're a prophet maybe. I mean, she's getting warmer. And then if you read on to verses 28 and 29, the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Right? She's coming to that place of saying, you know what? Maybe, maybe I found the Messiah. Maybe I have met him. And actually, that's the conclusion of the passage. When you get down to verses 40. To 42, after she goes back and tells her village, and they all come to see Jesus. It says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, this is what truth does. When we come to understand the truth about Jesus, we move from maybe that skeptical place or that place where we're inquiring and we come to that place where we say, this is the savior of the world and I put my trust in him. And that's what God wants. He wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus, the law was given through Moses. Jesus Christ came full of grace and full of truth. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus who speaks a better word to us. Thank you for the grace that he has shown to us and the truth that he is the Savior of the world. Lord, may we live in accordance with those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.